0: When we think about great drumming, we usually plug into something like this. But deep in the rainforests of Equatorial Africa, apes like us groove to the beat of a whole different drumming. Superstar drummers from the rock and the jazz world have nothing on the percussionist my next guest hangs with.
1: Crazy freestyle drummer who's like throws like a million hand and foot beats in with no kind of, I mean, it's like, you know, he's the he's the jazz drummer of the rainforest. This time
0: on Talking Apes, we welcome chimp drumming aficionado and much, much more. Dr. Catherine Hobader, primatologist at St. Andrews University in Scotland. Over the past two decades, Kat has been engaged in long-term studies of social behavior in wild chimpanzees in the Budango Forest Reserve in Uganda. She's especially interested in the role gestures play in communication. All the while, she and her team are making discoveries about chimpanzees that continue to surprise us all. Hi, I'm your host, Jerry Ellis, and welcome to Talking Apes. Talking Apes is a podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you and from nonprofit Globio. Hi, Kat, and welcome to Talking Apes. It's it's taken a while, but we finally got you here and I'm so excited about having this conversation.
1: Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun.
0: Where I would love to dive in, because you've had so many uh, just really what I would think of as personal experiences with chimpanzees in particular, mm-hmm. but other apes. Um, where I'd love to dive into all of this is, you know, we commonly hear this phrase, we're 98%, you mm-hmm. know, like chimpanzees or bonobos or whatever. But I guess I'm, I'm fascinated by that 98% but I'm mm-hmm. more fascinated by that 2%. <laughs> and, and what what is that 2%? So I'd love to spend some time in our conversation talking about
1: beyond the genetics. What what mm-hmm. is it that connects us? Um yeah, I mean that's the that's the magic 2%, right? That's where the magic happens. What what is it that goes on in there? And I think, I mean, one of the things that really fascinated me when I first became aware of it was that we think a lot about the fact that chimpanzees and bonobos are our closest relatives. So we've got that kind of 98% chimpanzee. But we forget that we're also their closest relatives. We're much closer to a chimp than a gorilla is. So we've got much more in common and they do with us than they do with any of the other apes out there. So we're really talking about the thinnest of margins in terms of biology. So what is it, if not biology, that's making us different? And those are the kind of things that are really fun to get into. That's
0: that's a really interesting twist on it. I hadn't quite thought of it that way. Um, because, you know, often people talk about, you know, the, the violence that chimpanzees can mm-hmm. display and, oh, mm-hmm. that's where we got our violent nature from. Mm-hmm. But they often don't talk about the fact that we have this closeness to bonobos and they're sure. much less overtly violent. So yeah. why don't we draw a bit more from them? Exactly.
1: Yeah. And so I- go ahead. I think, um, I mean, I think one of the things that also we're just starting to scratch the surface of is much of what we know about chimps comes from these one or two communities. The people like Jane Goodall and uh, Nishida were studying in East Africa for a long time. And we're just starting to realize just how incredibly diverse chimp behavior is. So when we're talking about like the violence that we hear from chimps and fantaside war with the neighbors, all of those kind of things. I've been spending more time recently in West Africa, where the chimps are incredibly tolerant of the neighbors and really quite lovely to each other. It's very nice as an East African chimp person to go out there and be like, Oh, there's another way to be a chimpanzee. This is not what it means to be a chimp. Chimps are. So I think having a sense of that diversity also you know, gives us more to draw on when we're thinking about the connections to humans. So we're not just sort of making this picture with this one community of chimps, but we've got this whole range of just incredible behavior that we're able to see more similarities and more differences at times within as well.
0: So I I think that's an important point alone for people to realize that chimps don't exist in one place in Africa. Africa's mm-hmm. a big place <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, as we were talking about earlier, it's a very big place um, mm-hmm. and, and chimps and you, your primary study area is in Uganda, correct?
1: Exactly. yeah so we're right at the, almost the most eastern edge of their of their range, but there you find chimps right across from, right across to the West African coast as well right through the middle.
0: You've um, just started looking at sort of the West African uh, mm-hmm. chimps. What what would you say is the biggest difference that you've immediately started noticing between the, the chimps in, in Uganda and the eastern side and and mm-hmm. the western side?
1: I mean, the first thing that tr- I still remember really vividly having my first day watching West African chimps, it was with a community called Bossu in Guinea. And I was like, what is with these girls? Like the female chimps, these adult females were walking in. They were being greeted the way that I would expect a dominant male to be greeted. They were taking charge. They were displacing. They were kind of, you know, very much occupying what I thought of as a male chimp role. And it was just incredibly striking because every little detail from the kind of gestures that were being exchanged. And it suddenly opened my eyes to this idea of what I thought was, you know, chimp behavior or stereotypically male chimp behavior and suddenly rethinking that and being like, oh, okay, maybe this has to do with how you're respected or your rank, but that has nothing necessarily to do with your sex as a chimpanzee and starting to realize the things that had been just assumptions for me and having that kind of blow up in front of my face was um, one of these like lovely kind of like rethinking all of what I thought I knew about science moments.
0: That to me is one of—I mean—in in the years that I've been around apes and and chimps, that's the thing that I I guess keeps catching me is every time I go back, it's like, wait, that's different than I thought, mm-hmm. and and I wonder how much about and, and especially you as a scientist and a primatologist. I mean, we you go through this education process and then you go out in the field for the first time and mm-hmm. you're, you're you're actually going out with that kind of education process Mm -hmm. in your head (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then trying to sort of like align that with what you're seeing. Definitely. That must be a huge challenge. And and, and now you guide students, PhD students Mm -hmm. and others too. I mean, how do you prepare them for that?
1: I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful for a couple of things. One is that I had no intention of becoming a primatologist. I fell into this by the happiest of accidents. And I think it means that I didn't sort of, I wasn't the diehard six year old who definitely wanted to be a chimpologist when she grew up. Um, and so I didn't necessarily come with quite as much of the kind of perhaps literature and scientific baggage. And my supervisor, who was uh, Dick Byrne here at St. Andrews, actually. Um, He sent me out there with basically almost no prep at the beginning and it was very much a go learn from the chimps what it means to be a chimp and going out there and then afterwards coming back and diving into the literature, but having that kind of... Sort of fresh eyed kind of initial interaction with them, I think was, was really valuable to me. And it's something I really encourage. And most of the students that work with me, we try as much as possible to get folk out into the field, just even for a couple of months to get a sense of who these are, what, you know, what it means to be a chimpanzee from the chimp's perspective. And then come back and think about the scientific questions you want to ask in that context. But, but yeah, try to absorb that early on. I'm going to jump uh, jump ahead in some of the
0: questions I had because there, that that reminds me what you just said reminds me of some recent articles about well digging um mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll let you describe what's going on there but the, the the part that connects for me is the fact that we've seen something happening for a while and we didn't recognize it for mm-hmm. what it was And which is kind of what you're saying, get there with fresh eyes and and maybe something that's been happening a long time, we just aren't recognizing. So if you could maybe walk us through the the whole uh, well-digging
1: scenario. um, I was, I mean the chimpanzees in the Wybera community, they are quite unusual for a rainforest group. So it's a rainforest. It's pretty wet everywhere. <laughs> Usually rainforest chimps are not short on water. Um, but this community doesn't have a permanent water source. There's no permanent rivers. And in the dry season, which is, you know, a relative thing in a rainforest, but it gets pretty dry, um, their water shrinks to this kind of muddy pool in the middle of their range. Um, and What happens in the dry season is that you'll get the chimps coming each day to drink from that and it gets smaller and smaller and muddier and muddier. But it's a great place to be able to effectively kind of Check in on everybody in the community. East African chimps are very what we call fission fusion, so that means they're not all together at the same time. Um, you'll have individuals you see every day, but you'll have individuals you don't see for months at a time, sometimes even years at a time. Um, and so, being at the dry season waterhole means that everybody's going to come and drink, and we get a great way to census them. Um, so I'm sitting there one day and. Um, this younger female who'd emigrated, immigrated in, she'd come in from another community a couple of years before called Onyofi sits down and she just starts digging in the mud. Um, and I assumed she was looking for some roots or something to eat. And then she stops and I see her like looking at the hole she's just dug and then very patiently waiting and what you, and then sort of bending down and drinking. And what I realized was that there was cleaner water rising through this kind of like hole that she dug in the gravel to one side of the muddy area, um, and a part of what cued me into the fact she was doing something really interesting is actually quite a few of the other chimps in the kind of like in the little party she was with. They were also clearly really interested. So you've got adult males peering over at her trying to work out what she's doing. I mean, this was something that was interesting enough to the chimps that it kind of made me pay attention to it. Um, and we, over the next kind of few weeks, spent more time there and we traced the spread of this kind of behavior to work out, okay, well, this is... This is a really interesting way of accessing clean water. It's a really smart thing to do. Um, and we want to see whether or not the other chimps are going to pick this up. She uh, So you know, would the other adults do it? We noticed that some of the young ones were starting to play over that dry season. But luckily at this waterhole, because it's such a key focal point for this community, we've been camera trapping there for years. and. We went back over our crammer trap footage and we actually found from years before um, evidence of, you know, Onyofi having been the first one still to dig, but some of the other chimps digging. And, you know, we'd seen these holes when we'd walked through the water hole and just assumed that it was, you know, pigs coming and digging for tubers or something. And there was this kind of, yeah, I think it's it's very much a sense of, you know, the chimps are the ones teaching us about, sometimes like they're having to do the extra work of making it really obvious for us that we just haven't noticed this behavior. Um, so feeling a little guilty as a scientist that this, you know, fascinating thing that we've turned out to be really interesting was something we'd somehow overlooked for years. But um, yeah, camera traps were a wonderful way to at least be able to go back over that and unpick that story back in time.
0: Three or four questions jumped to mind immediately there. And a couple. I'll dig into in a minute. The first one is. It sounds like there's like this moment when you're sitting there as a field, you know, researcher, where you have to like quit being human. You almost mm-hmm. have to like, okay, I have to mentally be part of this group mm-hmm. to almost see inside it in a way they're looking inside. Is that accurate? I that's
1: fair. I mean, I think, I think you sort of have to. It helps to, it's a very humbling experience to spend time in a rainforest with the chimps because very, very quickly you come into it and you realize that we're not that great at being rainforest primates. (laughs) Like I'm going patrolling with the chimps and I'm making noise and I'm messing up their hunts and I'm like, you know, trying to keep up with them and they're, immediately able to, you know, they're obviously beelining in a straight line for kilometers through this complex forest full of different trees because they're going straight to the fig tree that they know is in fruit, you know, and, you know, that's because they remembered that there's a fig tree there. They probably haven't been for a few weeks, but they remembered that, you know, a few weeks ago it had kind of like small fruits and it's time to go back and visit. And they have this incredible knowledge and understanding of the environment that they're in. And so, I think from your first days in the forest, it's very obviously this kind of humbling experience of we're not that great as a species. There's nothing particularly special about us. And we're certainly not that good at kind of being a rainforest species. But then there's also that sort of moment as you spend more time with them where some of the more subtle stuff where you're seeing... You're seeing what you brought as a preconception about what it means to have a social relationship with somebody, what it means to support other individuals, how those politics might play out in, in another society, in another culture. And it's very similar sometimes to really traveling. You know, I'm lucky I grew up traveling all around the world to different cultures and enjoying being immersed in that sort of, I don't understand anything. And suddenly you start to recognize things and pick up aspects of of those different cultures. And that process actually feels very similar when you're spending time with with other species for a long time too. That actually
0: kind of bounces back to a question that I had scribbled down I wanted to ask you, which was, the question was described for the first time when you saw a chimp gesture in a way that you only associated with humans. But I'd like to broaden it to, to cultural aspects and and awareness and all those things you were just talking about, um, and because you have lived and traveled around the world and in other places, so, so what were some of the first things that you saw chimps that doing things that you really only associated as as sort of human gestures or human mm-hmm. be, behaviors? That's a very broad mm-hmm. term, I know, but.
1: Um. I mean, I think like one of the ones that I can picture from very early on is um, two chimps. It was an adult female and adult male who've had, um, it's a little bit of a spat. I mean, chimps are drama queens. Everything is high drama. It will be over the smallest piece of fruit or the fact someone stood in the wrong place. And suddenly it will sound like they're screaming the forest down. Um, And A, first of all, When you're first immersed in that, you're like, oh my goodness, this is so serious. It's a huge fight. And then you realize very quickly that this is just like, it's so I grew up between um, a British family and a Lebanese family. My mother is English. My father is Lebanese. Being with the chimps is much more like being in a Middle Eastern family (laughs) in terms of you could swear everybody's about to kill each other at any second over dinner. And actually it's nothing. And we're all friends. And, you know, 20 minutes later Um, and very much the opposite of my northern British family's upbringing. Um, But, you know, with the chimps, okay, so high drama, lots of kind. And afterwards these two individuals walk back over this large branch that's kind of over the trail that I'm sitting on and reach out an arm to each other and just give the gentlest of these little, it's not a full on handshake, but a kind of little finger shake. And it's just so both obviously a way of reconciling, a way of saying, okay, fine, sorry about that. Maybe exaggerated a little bit, we're good here. But even just, you know, the gesture itself, the way it was, it felt, so obviously familiar to seeing. And I've seen it since I've seen it. I mean, I love the cases where you get two of the big males who'll have an argument and they do this little handshake to make up afterwards. But it really feels almost like when you've got kind of two young kids who are, they've been told to shake hands and make up and they're not really looking at each other, but they're like, fine, we're just going to kind of shake hands and just, you know, and then they walk off in opposite directions very quickly. And I think, you know, I do try. I think it's really important as a scientist that we we interrogate those assumptions and we don't just, because it looks the way we would use it, assume that it means the same thing to the chimpanzees. But in some cases... With all the data and all of the years of interrogating that scientifically, then yes, I mean, shaking hands is clearly a way of reestablishing um, affiliation, we would call it, bonding, kind of like reconnecting as two individuals socially. And it means exactly the same for the chimps as it does for us, which I, I really love is that point of yeah, connection. Hmm.
0: A minute ago, you mentioned this sort of fission fusion um, mm-hmm. Relationship, especially with East African chimpanzees, and mm-hmm. where, where you study, and you were talking about around the waterhole where they would mm-hmm. come. What can we talk about that a little bit more? Because I don't think people. I think people just assume that chimps are in a group and mm-hmm. they hang out in that group, and you know, more like gorillas, uh, for example. Um, you yeah. know, they're pretty, pretty much a permanent group. But chimps, mm-hmm. um, especially. My experience, anyway, my limited experience with chimps in the in East Africa, is that there is this constant sort of flux of a small little group, and then they gather in big groups, and then they split off in different pairs and different groups, and which to me seem is very much like the way we spend our days.
1: Yeah, we have our families,
0: we have our work mates, we have, you know, all that. So,
1: yeah, I think that's a really good example. It's it's. Yeah. So, I mean, just as you were saying, it's really chimps have lots of different types of relationships. So they have family relationships um, and they will spend a lot of time. So until they're seven, eight, nine years old, they're usually permanent with their uh, permanently with their mum. That can differ a little bit. So if you're if you're a young boy and you have an older brother, you might start when you're a bit younger to go kind of hang out with him and the big boys. But typically you're spending most of your time with mum early on. But once you start to spend a bit more time on your own, then you, chimps, I mean, they'll live, East African groups are in groups from 40, 50 individuals, right up to a couple of hundred in some cases. Um, The Wibera chimps that I work with have about 120 individuals, about 30 of those are big adult males. And... They're going to spend, you know, different amounts of time with different individuals. And that will determine, in some cases, it's because perhaps they have a genuine friendship, a social bond, a connection. They will support each other. They will prefer to spend time with each other when given a choice of who to go hang out with. In some cases, that might be because, you know, you there's a level of politics and expediency about keeping an eye on the kind of like, you know, that young upstart who's coming up through the community that, you know, you might not want to let him disappear off with the girl that everybody's after. Um, So you get this kind of what we would call fission and fusion, basically splitting and coming back together and none of it's predictable in the sense of if I know who, so, you know, I know who Alf is. I know that Alf is friends with Ben and McAllen. There are three big boys. I know that the chances are they will be more likely to split off with each other than Urshus and Kavili, who are kind of friends, but not, you know, there, there are friendships in there, so it's predictable to a certain extent. But it's not that you'll always have the same individuals. And in some cases, you know, those relationships, just as they do for us, change and evolve. You know, chimps will live till they're in some cases, 50, 60 years old, and your the nature of your relationships changes across your lifetime. So um, that's also something that particularly because systematic work with chimpanzees started in the 60s and 70s. And essentially, we're just now at the first full, you know, we're 60, 70 years in, that's one lifetime for one generation of chimps. And we're just starting to understand the complexity of what their whole life looks like.
0: That just raises so many questions in my head. I mean, as as you know, as we evolve, we evolve may not be the right word to use right here, but mm-hmm. in our in our own uh, personal lives, as we evolve, let's say we go mm-hmm. from being teenagers to twenty somethings to thirty somethings. I mean, we we become different people. We mm-hmm. you know we we pass through these stages in our lives where we're influenced by other people, trends, mm-hmm. culture you know, our own maturity. Um, mm-hmm. do, do you see anything like that in chimps that we've been able to recognize so far? I know I know that might be, we have a limited right. sample size to work with, but.
1: Yeah, and that's always the time. So I think one of the things that I've been really, really privileged is to be spend, it's been about almost 20 years that I've worked with the bidongo chimps. And I think one of the things that I'm, really starting to realize is we think when we talk about cultural differences, we think about the differences between groups, but what we're just starting to get to grips with is intergenerational differences. So the Sonso community that I know today are so different from the Sonso community that I knew 10 years ago and 15 years ago that I can, and I can see that, you know, it's things like the leadership style of the alpha male has gone from being this very settled, um, you know, kind of quite stable older male who was very good at kind of building relationships across the community and kind of keeping the community together that way. And then we had, you know, this young kind of like perhaps... He was physically very strong, but possibly not the smartest of alpha males. So he rose very quickly, uh, mostly by beating everybody up. And that's not a great strategy because, you know, the minute that you're not that strong anymore, everybody else, you know, chimps have memories and they are going to kind of, you know, I don't know that we would call it a grudge, but it felt very like it when we were watching in the forest sometimes like he and his family who'd been at the top. And as soon as they started to drop, everybody pushed them down to the bottom of the rankings. Hard, You know, they were really almost excluded from the group very quickly. And so chimps have, you know, whether it's the leadership style of the alpha male, whether it's the individual personalities of the of the different chimpanzees that are making up these communities, you see these shifts in to what extent they might be more egalitarian, they might be more despotic, they might share meat more, they might have different food preferences. So we've seen kind of their hunting evolve over generations as to being more into hunting for little antelopes or more into hunting for monkeys. And that's probably to do with the the characteristics of these individuals that make the, great, the group up. Um, and we're just really starting to recognize just how dramatic those differences can be across generations. It's yeah, it's a whole new dimension of flexibility in their behavior that we were just starting to be able to ask questions about.
0: About a year ago, we had uh, Martha Robbins, um, who, you know, she spent mm-hmm. her life looking at, at gorillas, actually gorillas in Bowindi, not far from where you are um, mm-hmm. in your study groups. And that was something that she was talking about. It's it's just, it, they're just now getting to the point where they've looked at enough individuals, seen individuals born and then grow up within there mm-hmm. that they can begin to see uh, the sort of individual mm-hmm. um, distinctions that you were talking about, instead of looking at culture as this bigger thing, but looking yep. at it within the group and the group dynamics and how that changes. So it's really interesting that you should talk about that. I mean, it, it it may be something similar across apes, that, but we just Absolutely. haven't had enough time to look at it.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, for it depends a little bit on what questions we're interested in asking. But for a long time as a scientist, I was always taught individual variation, the differences between individuals, the differences between sites these were problems that we had to get over. Everybody wanted to know, what does a chimp do? Like, what's the average chimp like? So we'd go out there and we'd get as much data as possible, as much data as possible, and we'd average everybody's behavior out. And we'd talk about, okay, and that would allow us, you know, to say something meaningful about chimps in general. It would let us sort of predict, okay, well, we know what the average chimp does. So we've got a sense of what will happen in this situation when chimps are interacting. But when we did that, which I think was very much the way we asked questions for a few decades now, we flatten out, we get rid of all of this incredible richness and variation in their behavior. These, I mean, we've got a project right now where we're looking at differences between individuals, differences between communities and differences between species. And it's about learning to love the mess and the noise, which honestly, as a scientist, phew, major statistical headaches. (laughs) If we can, you know, we're we're starting to be able to have the tools to ask what I think are the much more interesting questions, you know, like if we want to ask about, uh, so I'm interested particularly in communication. And if I was looking at language and humans, the only way that I get to the essence of that is by studying the different languages and the different ways they're expressed. And I know the difference between, you and I saying the same word with different voices or different accents and you and I saying different words from different languages only by studying the differences and similarities between us and that yeah we have we have to learn to get into the mess get into the individual differences and uh, it yeah it really is opening up I think we both recognize that now but it's only really now that we have the tools as scientists to actually be able to get stuck into some of that now. Do you think
0: there's been a resistance over the history of science to do that, to get stuck into that mess?
1: I think so. I mean, I think, you know, partly it is about the way that we ask questions, um, particularly with the way we asked questions of other species. Um, but you can see that reflected in the science of our own behavior. So we've we're just starting to recognize now that, um, what we would call in psychology the weird sample bias—so Western, industrialized, educated, rich, democratic—and essentially what we're realizing is that 95% of research describing human behavior in psychology was came from tests of first-year undergraduate university <laughs> students, and I was one of those students. So, like, I'm like I'm in that sample, and I am not representative of humanity <laughs> in the global sense, right? <laughs> so you know like this is one of those things where we've done the same to other species we've gone out and we've tested 15 apes living in a zoo in you know Edinburgh Scotland and thought that that in any way was uh, gave us the data to talk about what it means to be a chimpanzee and i think to be fair, that's a very Western scientific perspective. One of the things that I've particularly appreciated in the last kind of few years is spending more time um, with Japanese primatological colleagues who had, came from a very different scientific discipline, um, coming from the principle that recognizing that this was not humans and animals, but that humans were animals. And that I think when you come at your science from this from that particular viewpoint, you don't start to ask the question, can animals do what we do? Because if you accept that humans are apes, then it's a kind of redundant question because it means if we can do it, apes can do it because we're apes too. And I think that little thing that almost seems like a sort of trivial flippant thing to say Is actually fundamentally at the root of the difference between some of these different scientific approaches. And it allowed Japanese primatologists, they were the first ones to be describing culture in primates. This, uh, you know, they were, um, it was Japanese primatologists because it was Nishida who went out at the same time as Jane Goodall, who was the first one to recognize a lot of the aspects of wild chimp behavior that that, um, now we, now we're coming to recognize too, but, but we're 50 years behind the curve. And yeah, I think learning to love individual differences, getting into that mess, um, is something that, um, that, you know, it's, it's not, it wasn't necessary. There are other ways of doing it. There've been other scientific kind of approaches to this for a long time. And we're just perhaps starting to see, to see the benefits of that or to see the the advantages of that. Yeah.
0: Of course, that raises the question, I guess, if 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 that's one if that's one thing that happened when you, you look at the way the Japanese researchers approached it versus, you know, a Western, what would happen if you had more African researchers or more, you know, it, yeah. it, you know, I don't know, so, you know, people from South America looking at it. I sure. mean, because they're yeah. going to bring their cultural lens to this thing as well. And
1: 100 percent. I mean, yeah. I think we've only impoverished our science by limiting the perspectives and viewpoints of the people who are studying it. And um, I think particularly as a primatologist who's worked with apes in Africa, I'm extremely aware of the fact that there are so few uh, African-born primatologists and um, so much of what I've learned, I, I think, you know, both I've learned that from the apes and spending time with them, but... When I'm going out to these field sites and when I'm spending time in the forest, I'm not doing this alone. It's always with a team, typically of local field assistants. So our Ugandan field assistants in Uganda, um, they are teaching me so much about what it you know what it means to observe the chimps, what it means to be a chimp. They're thinking about questions um, in ways that I haven't even thought to think about, um, and it's really yeah, really recognizing the incredible contribution that they make to the science that I think, you know, we haven't, we, we've, you know, really haven't recognized and recognizing also how much that limits the questions that we've thought to ask so far um, is, is kind of a humbling experience and something that I think we as a field need to do a lot better in working towards.
0: How much do you think some of that is influenced by, um, I'll say time, but let me define that a little bit. Time being something that if I'm a Ugandan researcher and I'm sitting there, I'm living in Uganda, I'm from Uganda. Mm -hmm. You go there with a a sense of time. I have four months Mm -hmm. to be in the field and then I have to be back at St. Andrews or Mm -hmm. I have, you know, two months or whatever Mm -hmm. the time, that time whether we wish it or not puts a pressure on trying to, to look at things and, and understand things where if, you, if you're sitting there almost with a sense of, I can sit here the rest of my life if I want to. Um, mm-hmm. Does that change our, the way we see things, the way we, uh, uh, is there a more Surely. relaxed kind of mental I, I'm, I'm searching for the words here. I'm sorry, I'm struggling a bit, but I
1: think you understand no. what I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah, I think I can understand where you're coming from. I mean, I think I think I have opportunities to ask those questions that the people that I work with in Uganda that are Ugandan colleagues often don't. And um, in some ways, the way in which they understand and know the chimpanzees that they've in. I mean, Gershom, our head field assistant, has spent, you know, almost 40 years now with the Sunso community. Um, and he he knows those chimps in ways that, that I can't even start to unpick. And I, I, wish, on a, I wish I could some, no, could I download Gershom and just like have him on an app that I take everywhere with me? Cause I always have questions and um, his perspective on that is invaluable. But I, I think also in many cases, the opportunities that I have to sit in the field and reflect and think about science and collect my data to answer the questions are also opportunities that the Ugandan, um, researchers and scientists and field assistants that I work with don't have. And I think, whereas I might be limited in time, um, yeah, being able to afford them the opportunity to pursue those ideas, to take them forward, to think about them in the way that they like to think about them. Um, yeah, I think it might be that, um, it's easier to recognize the limits that I experience, but there are certainly limits that I think place different pressures on, on the Ugandan colleagues I work with.
0: We're going to take a short break in my conversation with Kat Hobader, and when we come back, we're going to check on one of my favorite subjects that she's been working on, which is drummers of the forest. But first, let's catch up with assistant producer Demelza. Hi, Demelza, how are you? Hi.
2: Uh, oh, I'm great, thank you. How are you?
0: I am great and I am so excited about this podcast and the conversation with Kat. It's just, this is some of the most amazing work with apes like us. I've been wanting to talk to her for so long about some of it and it's really joy to have her on.
2: Oh, I agree. As someone who's come from a sanctuary background where I've worked with chimps but only rescued chimps who are kind of psychologically damaged and always exhibiting these you know very abnormal behaviors because of the traumatic backgrounds to hear about these natural behaviors that they have in the wild where they belong is just so fascinating and exciting to me
0: yeah it's incredible i just i you know as a filmmaker i wish that i'd been right there in her shadow for the last 20 years to film all the stuff Mm -hmm. she's been talking about oh yeah
2: you've got you've got to do it in the future you've got to go out with Kat.
0: soon soon well speaking of communication um what's been going on um, behind the scenes for us
2: okay so this week we asked listeners to describe talking apes podcast in three words so we had lorraine belcher she said it's important informative and knowledgeable thank you lorraine we also had susie thune big shout out to Susie she is a huge fan of the podcast and she always publicly supports us we love her thank you Susie she says informative thought-provoking and inspiring and we had Linda Laney who said it's tricky to describe it in three words but it's engaging enlightening and educating and she said it's definitely worth the listen keep up the good work I think people are gonna try and give us a big head, Jerry. <laughs>
0: um, well, hopefully they're giving a big head to all of the people we have on as guests because we have some amazing people and it's so it it's just really wonderful to share what's going on with people, you know, in the field, especially, you know, folks like Kat Hobader and the stories that they're telling and the research that they're doing. So
2: Well that's it. And oh, we've got all these other amazing guests coming up, just like Kat and everybody else we've had on. We really tried to make this podcast as good as we can for you guys. So, so yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, head over to talkingapes.org and leave a comment or question. Thank you, everyone. We really appreciate you.
0: That's great. And now let's get back to my conversation with Kat Hobader. I want to back up. Um, just a little bit and you because you were talking about at one point we were talking about the individual and and looking mm-hmm. at the individual within the culture and i and I think a really great example of that was in one of the the, the pieces i read where you were describing drumming mm-hmm. i thought that was a wonderful piece because it made me think about chimps in, in a slightly different way i mean I certainly mm-hmm. recognize them as individuals in the the chimps that I've worked with, whether it's at Gombe or it's in even in sanctuaries. Could you describe drumming for those who don't mm-hmm. understand what it, it it is? And then talk about some of the, the drumming styles, I guess. That's what really I was really fascinated. Yeah, this
1: was it was a lovely chance really to get stuck into the science of something that we all know. And this is a great example of where we like as an individual and the, you know, the field staff, like as researchers and staff in the forest, then we could recognize the chimps when they were drumming at a distance. And chimps, so chimp drumming is exactly what it sounds like. The trees in the rainforest have these big kind of buttress roots. They're these big triangular flanges that sort of support these huge, I mean, 50, 60 meter tall trunks. And they're they're basically roots that sort of create this like large triangles. So they're very narrow, but they're very large. And essentially, if you hit one of those really hard, you get this big, deep kind of resonant booming sound. And the chimps will hit those with their hands, but often, most often with their feet. Um, So, and they're, um, when they do that, I mean, those noises will travel a kilometer, a kilometer and a half through the rainforest. So in this dense environment where you can only see like 10 meters, if you're lucky, five meters is a bit more realistic. And even their big long distance calls, which are pant hoots, maybe a kilometer on a good day. But these drums can go one, one and a half kilometers. And so if you're in these communities that are splitting up and spending different amounts of time with each other and you want to be able to communicate across long distances, drumming is a fantastic way to do that. um, But it's not just about saying, you know, if I drum on a tree buttress, then somebody a kilometer away is like, oh, there's a chimp there, you know. Um, Can they put more information than that in those drums? And we suspected that they could mostly because when I heard a chimp drumming in the forest, it wasn't just that I knew there was a chimp drumming. It's like, oh, that's where Ben is, or that's where Frank is, or that's where Mosa is. We would recognize the individuals. And it was sort of this intangible sense. In some cases it was kind of obvious. So there's a chimp called Zalu who's this crazy freestyle drummer who's like throws like a million hand and foot beats in with no kind of, I mean, it's like, you know, he's the, he's the jazz drummer of the rainforest. It's very, very kind of free flowing. Um, but, and there, you know, like, you know, so you, there were a few that, but trying to pinpoint something that was like individual rhythm, individual characteristics. Like, that's not actually that straightforward. And we, we asked, we came at this from so many different directions. We were talking to musicians and to music scientists and to linguists. And, you know, it wasn't just about the speed, um, because individual chimps will have different a pr- different flourishes almost. So there's something we call a double beat. It's basically they're going to hold the top of the buttress with their hand and they hit like both feet almost simultaneously together really quickly. So you get like boom, boom, kind of tied together. And some chimps have a very slow, regular rhythm. So like, boom, 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 some chimps are doing this kind of syncopated. So you get doodong, do doodong. Some of them are throwing these little double beat flourishes in, but obviously What your drum sounds like also depends a little bit on the tree that you're drumming on because that changes its shape and its sound. And so there was quite a lot of sort of noise and mess for us to have to wade through. It took quite a lot of data to start to be able to actually say, oh, well, what we the reason that we know Ben is drumming over there is because it's this long interspersed regular beat. Or the reason we know it's ALF is because it'll be a double beat, double beat, one beat kind of thing. And not always, but most of the time. Um, and so what we were able to do over time was to, to tease this apart and to actually describe the individual signatures for these different males. Um, but I think the thing that got me most excited about this study was... We sort of both ourselves as just, you know, spending time with the chimps, we kind of knew this was probably the case. And there was a little data from some other groups that had already suggested that they might have these styles, but the data were really messy and there wasn't a very kind of clear yes, no answer. And what we found was that the chimps who are traveling, and so that's in a context where you might want to reveal, hey, I'm over here, or, you know, like they're dispersed, they're trying to find each other potentially. Um, They have really clear signature styles, but the chimps who are displaying and chimps will Uh, Basically, it displays exactly what it sounds like. They're showing off to the other individuals nearby. Um, That might be because they're you know, wanting to rise in the social ranks a little bit. So show off how big and strong they are. Um, You might particularly want to do that if there's a girl that you've got your eye on that you're trying to impress or whether or not you're trying to make it really clear to the young upstarts that you're still in charge as the kind of big male chimp. Um, But when you're displaying, that's something for your local audience. And it might actually be really a really bad idea to give away who you are. Cause imagine you're the kind of third or fourth ranking guy and there's there's okay, the girl's in Easter. She's ready. That means she's ready to potentially get pregnant. This is your moment. You're gonna show off. You're gonna show her how big and strong you are. You're gonna persuade her that you're the guy that she wants to go away with. Um, but, and the alpha male is not here. But the alpha male might be like just, you know, 50 meters around the corner. This is a really dense rainforest. So the minute someone's out of sight, you don't actually know where they are. And under those circumstances, giving away that you're displaying... And not just like so that the alpha male knows uh, there's not just as a male displaying, but that was Frank and Frank was displaying. And I know that he sat next to that girl that I had like just left five minutes ago. That's a terrible time to give away your identity. And essentially what we basically were able to show was that the drums during displays don't have these signatures and the drums during traveling do. And that means the chimps are essentially choosing. So they're choo- this isn't something that they have to do. It's not something about their physiology, about how, you know, the way in which they move or the way in which you kind of, you know, it's something that they're essentially choosing to, to, to express. And so it was a really nice way of both tidying up this longstanding kind of messy problem in science and then also getting into the nitty gritty of what made the individual signatures look the way they did.
0: Wow, you're describing that. and I can think of so many humans. you could have been describing right there that's that was yeah we were talking about that two percent well we just dug Mm -hmm. into that two percent a little bit yeah sometimes
1: that gets real slim
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah we may have been down under one percent right there um you know and and that kind of leads me to uh, you know the the last question that I wanted to ask you. There's so many things I want to ask you, and mm-hmm. we'll we'll do this again. Hopefully, we can do it from the field sometime, mm-hmm. both of us out there and um, doing this. But what what about what have you seen from a gesture standpoint that has just mm-hmm. absolutely blown you away? That just you know what what's hiding in that two percent that you uncovered, or you think you you might have uncovered that just you went oh my God, I had no <laughs> idea this would ever pop up.
1: I mean, I think when you, so when we were first looking at the gestures in the chimps, I mean, people had looked at gesture in captivity for a long time. We knew that apes' gestured. these have been described in the earliest studies, like good old Ployi Nishida, were all describing this in the 60s. Um There was lots of amazing work in captivity showing that gesture was a really important way that chimps communicated um but in captivity, most of what had been described was young chimps using these in a playful kind of context, and I think it was very immediately obvious when when we went out and um, my PhD work was actually to try to do the first systematic study of gesture in the, in the wild. So go out to... I realized very quickly why nobody had done it before when I started this, by the way, because the only way to study gesture is to film it, and you're basically running around a dark rainforest looking for dark chimps who are constantly moving with trees everywhere and leaves everywhere and noise everywhere, and I'm out of breath, and the camera's going up and down, and it's the worst possible context in which to get like video-based data. But eventually we got enough of it to be able to very clearly show from the beginning that gesture is important to all all chimps. And now actually we understand really all apes are gesturing all the time. This is such an important, such an important way for them to express themselves. And what you realize quite quickly too, is that the vocalizations are giving the facial expressions they are giving a lot of that is about their affect about their expressing kind of what's going on, almost a sort of external internal monologue of like, I'm hungry, I'm afraid, you know, something. But their gesture is what they do to ask something of somebody else. This is the way that I tell you to come here, tell you to go away, tell you to give me that thing. Shall we groom? Shall we travel? Shall we play? Um, All of those little day-to-day ways... That are so important to regulate your social life. They do that with gesture. And it was, doesn't matter if you're a young infant that you're like a one year old who's just working out how their hands really work to a, you know, 65 year old grandpa chimpanzee that gestures the way that you do that. And that I think was something that we didn't necessarily expect going out at the beginning. So we've got this beautiful rich system of communication, but honestly, what What really, what I find the most interesting is not really the system itself. So I could talk about like chimps beckon, chimps kind of point at times, even chimps uh, pirouette to gesture, chimps give those beautiful handshakes to make up. You know, there's a lot that feels very familiar, but to me, I think of that as like their toolkit. It's like, you know, it's what gestures can they have in their toolkit? Um, What really interests me much more is what they're doing with that you know and it's it's kind of the difference between studying the sounds and words in a language versus looking at you know making jokes deceiving each other telling tales gossiping putting memes on the internet like writing poetry what what is wonderful about language and what we do with language is not the sounds we make, or the response waiting, or the structure, or the grammar, or the syntax, or any of the stuff that we spend a lot of time digging into as linguists. It's it's what we're doing with it. It's what we use language for that nothing else works for. And I think that's what that's what really mm, strikes me about the chimps is seeing seeing what they're using those gestures for. It's seeing the little. It's a really simple request to groom me but it's happening between two male chimps that normally would never do that. And then realizing only six months later, when I'm looking back and thinking about that very simple gestural request that, oh, you know what? That was the beginning. That was when this little alliance that have now taken over the whole group and fundamentally changed the politics and the structure. And it came down to that one moment. And there's nothing special about the gesture, but it was about what was expressed in that moment. And I think that's what I find fascinating and compelling and it's what will continue to compel me because i you know i know what the gestures are now i know what they mean but getting to watch that getting the you know the privilege of being a part of that daily world every day when i'm there it's brand new and there's always something to learn so yeah that's what that's what i find exciting about it
0: wow Now, no that's just yeah that's amazing that is really amazing. Hey, thank you so much for um, being on Talking Apes and sharing all of this stuff. I, like I said, we could talk for hours. I mean, <laughs> there's so much you have seen o- over these 20 years. And uh, um, maybe we can do this again sometime.
1: Oh, I'd love that. It was really my pleasure. Yeah, I'm always happy to talk to <laughs>
0: Great. Thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Once again, I'd like to thank Kat Hobader for sharing her insights into some of the mysteries wild chimps are beginning to reveal. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts like Kat, from research to outreach, with passionate primate people, and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the very forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.talkingapes.org. That's TalkingApesOneword.org. or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And it's on the website that you can share your ideas about future podcasts or any other questions you might have. I'd like to thank Talking Apes assistant producer, Demelza Bond, for her incredible work behind the microphone. And finally, thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation via the link on our new website. And finally, for all those who work tirelessly every day to protect and save great apes and their forest home, thank you. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening to Talking Apes.